Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go, you guys. All right. Turn that music off. Well, hello, everyone. It's Chris coming at you again with a solo episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. The Single Tongue. The Single Tongues Podcast, apparently. Um, Back to to the grind, as I promised. Um, So this one will be coming out uh, out on Wednesday, uh, according to our typical schedule. I think we have something special planned on Sunday, so look forward to that. Um, what else? What else? Oh, um, let's see. Okay, so I told you guys that Plato would be would be on the agenda in the same vein as we did before with a bunch of the other episodes on um, Taoism and Hinduism and uh, Christianity and a bunch of other stuff. Um, if you guys remember taking some of these quotes and the history of these different you know, traditions, and pointing out ways in which they're super mystical, ways in which, you know, somebody like Jesus or, or Lao Tse or something like that comes across in the, in the right framing. They come across sounding like, like a hippie or a Vedanta Hindu practitioner or something like that, uh, where these really famous people or traditions that aren't considered to be, you know, Eastern or mystical at all, um, how they come to basically sound a lot like um, you know, that hippie, that hippie one with the universe type of uh, mentality, you know, uh, and, and more so and like the, the interesting, the interesting bit really is getting that type of, um, getting that type of message from places where you wouldn't expect, like getting them from, you know, the early Christians or something. Um, I mean, you'd expect to get them from, you know, 1960s hippie with a lot of psychedelic experience or like a shaman from the Siberia or from South America and the Amazon or something. You don't expect to hear them from from these other these other people. And as it turns out, Plato really is not an exception to that. And you guys may not, that may not be a surprise to you after we did the uh, pre-Socratic philosophers. We did a couple episodes on some of the people that came before Plato. And that was eye-opening for me. I mean, the idea that these ideas seemingly go back into the Western tradition deep, deep, you know, maybe as far back as it goes. And it just kind of gives credence to the idea that I've always, uh, I guess, not maybe maybe saying always is too much, but of late have been convinced, maybe it goes back to the beginning of all kind of religious experience and, and those sorts of traditions. Uh, but it's deep in philosophy, even in, uh, you know, um, I mean, all kinds of things, like Jordan Peterson talked about in alchemy as well, and in the Middle Ages, and, you know, the early parts of science, the early days of science. Um, so it's interesting. And, um, you know, in the past when I did this, uh, you guys will remember, 
I basically went through like the holy books or the the quotes that were available from these people, organized them in a way that I thought was um, interesting, and then I read read them and talk about them and try to give you guys some idea of what they were saying, what what it was all about, and then pointing out all these areas that I find interesting where they kind of correspond to these mystical ideas that you know about the universe being one, um, you know about consciousness's role and 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 uh, being about the kind of stuff that. Heidegger and Hegel and some of these much later philosophers would talk about the kind of things that in physics are talked about now with this idea of panpsychism, which we've talked about as well. So even in modern science, we're seeing these things. So it's like, maybe these ideas are having a renaissance. You know, maybe that's a really good thing. And, um, and if it's true that we can see this stuff in Plato, then maybe that will go some distance to convincing people uh, who who are you know mostly atheists and you know scientifically rationally minded people in the in the modern Western world that these ideas are at the are at the core uh, at the foundation of all of Western ideas and thoughts, including those that that allowed us to uh, progress um, or progress I should say to the modern world and all the great things we enjoy uh, from modernity the, the great you know advances in science and, and philosophy and culture and society and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but what I found with Plato is that it was way more difficult than that. Uh, I don't know how if you guys know. I mean, we talked about a little bit already about how Plato wrote. So he wrote in these dialogues. And the dialogues is basically like a play. So you're reading a conversation being had, you know, with a bunch of people and Plato gives you you know, like the the scene, you can you know what's going on, you know what it looks like. It, it, it's a lot more entertaining, really, than reading ordinary philosophy because it's it's not somebody telling you what they've discovered and how they got there. It's like a natural conversation, and the different characters in the conversation they represent a different frame of mind. So each person is like, hey, this is you know this is what you might hear from someone like this. This is what you might hear from someone like that. And then and then Socrates in in most of the dialogues is the person who is um, who was answering um, in a different way, and that's like the punchline of these stories. It's Socrates' piece. It's the way he comes about answering these questions or disagreeing with the other people, let's say, or agreeing with them. Uh, that stands out. And there's a lot of these. So as you can imagine, it's not like, you know, some modern-day philosopher that says something like, you know, A plus B equals C or something in, in their, um, uh, you know, in this way that's deductive or something, this logical way, and they say, this is how I came to the conclusion, these are all the reasons why I think that, this is what you can deduce from it, and how much more you can develop off these ideas. It's, you know, very scientific, very like Aristotle, who comes after Plato, very much like Aristotle, this empirical type of, of way, where Plato didn't want to do that. He didn't want to put himself in the position where he's telling somebody what is true, what he wants to do is get people to think about what truth is, and uh, you know, to to he basically gives Socrates as an example of how people should be thinking, how we should be questioning the the presuppositions of the of the things that people are saying to you, how you should be skeptical, and uh, it's really interesting. However, it's much more difficult to come up with quotes that that you can pull from a dialogue. Because basically what you're doing is taking chunks out of a conversation like that's happening between three or four or five people, let's say, 
um, very, very difficult to, to pull those excerpts out because you're pulling it out of context. You know, it's not so cut and dry. Everything that you do is pulled out of context. So that's one problem. Here's the next problem. Plato wrote a bunch of dialogues, okay? So I didn't know how many until I tried this exercise. Like, let's talk about Plato, right? Because we keep hearing everything is a footnote to Plato. So that must mean he's important. What did he say? So here, here I'm going to give you a list of the dialogues. So you can imagine every single one of these is separate. Every single one of these is saying something different. In the early years, uh, there were the Apology, which is one of Plato's most famous. Then there's Crito, um, and and I have to I have to also say again, when we start pronouncing all these Greek words. I'm sure to mispronounce them. Feel free to laugh at my expense. The next one is called um, Charmidides or Temperance. The next one is called boy Laches or cor- or, or Courage. The next one Lysis or Friendship. Euthyphro, um, and then Ion. So these are all individual dialogues that were written probably early on in his life. Then there's a middle period, and then these are all people's names that uh, primarily. But we've got um, Gorgias, uh, Protagoras, Meno, Euthydemus, uh, Cratylus, Phaedo, Phaedrus, and then the couple of famous ones: the Symposium and the Republic. And then we have. Uh, Theidius and Parmenides, and all of these are kind of dialogues that he that he wrote in the middle of his life. And then there's a whole series uh, that were written later in life: um, Sophist, Statesman, Philebus, Timaeus, which is also famous, Critias, which is also famous, Laws, and then the Seventh Letter. Okay, so I have not read all of these yet. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. But you can see the daunting task that I've put before myself. There's a tremendous amount to read. And in these dialogues, it's, it's either Socrates primarily. In some instances, it's Aristotle uh, that are the speakers in the dialogues that are communicating what Plato wanted communicated. These maybe are Plato's ideas or the ones that he taught uh, in the academy. Um, so I bring up the academy, and for those people who don't know, Plato was one of the first people to start a school, kind of like a university, you might say. It's called... Uh, um, the academy, and and so he taught people um, his style of thinking, uh, which is demonstrated by Socrates in these dialogues. All of the dialogues I just read to you, if you guys are curious, they're free and available to you. You can go and read them on the website. I continue to, to tout, which is called sacredtext.com, sacred-text.com. All of these are here and free. Uh, these are public public domain versions. So these are translations that go back to the late 1800s by a guy named uh, Benjamin Jowett. Um, so there are, I'm sure, other translations, but these are all public domain. That's why they're free. I'm going to read to you the opening of this piece on Plato, which um, the uh, curator of sacredtexts.com, who's since passed away, he wrote this. So this will give you some context. He says, he says Plato, the greatest philosopher of ancient Greece, was born in Athens in 428 or 427 BC to an aristocratic family. So probably, you know, a well-to-do kid. It says he studied under Socrates, who appears as a character in many of his dialogues. He attended Socrates' trial, and the traumatic experience may have led to his attempt uh, to design an ideal society. 
So I'll just stop and mention or uh, remind you that uh, Socrates, of course, was tried and executed by the government of Athens, um, arguably for, for doing nothing wrong other than pointing out to very important people that they didn't know shit about shit, that they pretended to be wise but really were not, and he just asked a bunch of good questions. You can kind of think, um, I don't know how often this happens today, but you can kind of think of those those videos we see of the press secretary talking uh, talking to the public, fielding questions, or you know the president, let's say, fielding questions. Um, you know how often? Well, I, I digress. I'll just say that uh, that having watched Socrates um, Socrates basically be killed out of principle for the vanity of, you know, politicians and people in power is pretty much what it boils down to. That was something that was scarring for Plato. And uh, and what they're basically suggesting here is that all the stuff Plato talks about, about the world of forms and all this, this perfection and the stuff that he touts um, in his philosophy, that maybe that was just a response to this traumatic experience that Plato had to go through watching his his mentor um, be killed uh, by a bunch of lesser men for reasons of their own vanity and insecurity. Um, I mean, Jesus. I think we can all we can all appreciate that to some degree. All right, so he goes on. He says, following the death of Socrates, he traveled widely in search of learning. And that's that's what Socrates did, and you can see that in some of the dialogues. You know, he went around. Uh, seeking out the people that claim to be wise and talking to them. And so that's what Plato did. Um, only he sort of traveled the world. And you can imagine Plato probably ended up in, in Egypt. He probably ended up in, you know, um, the, board, the borders of the, kind of the Middle East. He, you know, he, he obviously was going all around, um, all around the Greek, Greek Isles and so forth. So what, what exposure Plato had to these other ideas, I, I really don't know. Maybe we'll find out, you know, getting through some of these dialogues if he points it out. But remember, Plato is not a character in these stories. It's it's always it's always a, a mouthpiece of, of Plato, and that's usually Socrates. In any case, he says um, after twelve years he returned to Athens. So he was out, you know, out traveling the world a long time, and he founded his academy. It says one of the earliest organized schools in Western civilization. And then, of course, among Plato's pupils was Aristotle. Uh, for those people who don't know, uh, Aristotle had a f- pretty famous pupil himself. You may uh, you may know the man uh, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, of course, conquered uh, all of the uh, known world at the time, including you know the entire Middle East, all the way to India, and um, and all of Greece and, and and Macedon, which is north of Greece. So basically, all of the known world uh, he had uh, he had control over, and so the ideas, the Platonic ideas, went through Aristotle into Alexander the Great, and then into the rest of the world, which is which is amazing. Uh, it's amazing. So this guy, he goes on, he says, Plato wrote extensively and most of his writings survived. So you guys remember when we were talking about the pre-Socratic philosophers, we're basically working with, you know, sometimes sentences, just a couple of sentences that survived and everything else was was gone. Not Not true with Plato. He goes on, he says, his works are in the form of dialogues where several characters argue a topic by asking questions of each other. This form allows Plato to raise various points of view and let the reader decide which is valid. So I cannot emphasize to you enough how important it is that Plato chose to write in dialogue and the fact that, as far as I know, no other major philosopher ever since has ever done. And the idea is really important. It's how often do you listen to a smart person 
tell you something that he's convinced of, you know, maybe or maybe not, but tells you confidently, um, this is this is the truth, this is the case. Um, that's not what Plato does. Plato allows the person who would say, hey, that I disagree, that's not the case, to say his piece in the dialogue. And then Socrates steps in and says, this is what I think. And you as the reader are supposed to hear all of the arguments and decide, do you, do you agree, do you side with Plato that Socrates is the one who's making the best points, or do you not? And you're free to choose that. Okay, so how many philosophers, how many news people, how many journalists uh, do that today? How many give you all of the various arguments in the best way possible, the strongest arguments, and then let you decide what the truth is? So I think this goes back to this idea of maniacal arrogance that Kyle and I keep talking about. You know, people are always quick to assume that they're competent, that they know the truth, because the proof of their experience is that, hey, man, it's got me this far. I must, I must know something. Socrates is the one that went out there and said, okay, what is it that you know? And here are, the, here are all the reasons why you're full of shit. And I think that's what the world needs a little bit more these days. We need to hear all of the ideas. We need to be able to, to decide who is full of shit. Spoiler alert, most everybody. All right, so he goes on. It says, it says Plato expounded a form of dualism where there is a world of ideal forms uh, separate from the world of perceptions. Okay, so here alone you start seeing a little bit of this mystic idea creep in. And at the heart of a lot of this mysticism is the idea that perception is illusion, to some degree or other, that what we see out in the world is not really what's there. There's some difference there. That's the idea of dualism. There's really two things going on. There's the way we see and experience the world, and there's the way the world actually is. So there's two things going on. And the way the world actually is, this is the world of forms that Plato will talk about. Um, he, he's not going to get into that in, in the dialogue that we're going to talk about today, but just keep that in mind for the future. All right, so he goes on, he says, the most famous exposition of this is his metaphor of the cave. So if you guys have heard of, of Plato's um, cave story, this is, this is uh, kind of maybe the most famous. He says, where, um, where people living in a cave are only able to see flickering shadows projected on the wall of the external reality. He says, this influenced many later thinkers, particularly the Neoplatonists and the Gnostics, and is similar to views held by some schools of Hindu dualistic metaphysics, Plato dies in 347 BC, and in the Middle Ages he was eclipsed by Aristotle, it says. His works were saved for, for posterity by Islamic scholars and reintroduced in the West in the, uh, in the Renaissance. Since, since then he has been a strong influence on philosophy as well as natural and social sciences, blah, 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 blah. The important thing here is something I mentioned before, which people don't, people don't give credit where credit's due, and that is that all of these classical works all the ones that we were talking about earlier with um, the pre-Socratics plus Plato and Aristotle, so many of these books were lost, like we talked about, permanently to history. And most of the ones that weren't lost, most of the ones that, that we have saved, were lost in the West, meaning that the Europeans had no record of them anymore. They had been destroyed, they had been, they had been written over, washed from the... Washed from the papyrus were washed and then re rewritten on, or the you know the the vellum washed and rewritten on, or whatever it is, and we didn't have any of these. They were saved by the Islamic world. So there was a time during the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages where um, Europe was at a low point culturally, you might say, um, 
That's why we call it the Dark Ages. And uh, there wasn't a lot. There wasn't a lot being produced, you know, uh, of kind of academic importance. And uh, in the Islamic world at the time, it was like their Renaissance. It was like their high culture, and they actually had all of these works translated into Arabic. Many of them still in, in Greek, but translated into Arabic. They're the ones that saved it. And so when we had the Renaissance in Europe, um, we were open again to these old ideas. And guess where we found them? The middle fucking east in, in, uh, in Arabic primarily. So those, the same people today that are tearing down statues of Buddha in, uh, you know, in, um, I can't remember if it's in Afghanistan or where it is, but uh, ISIS and so forth, dynamiting these, these uh, you know, ancient works of, um, of religious uh, importance and, and historical importance, those people... Those were the ones that were, were wise enough to save these works for posterity. It's just amazing. It's amazing what's happening. So anyway, credit where credit's due. Uh, they did that, and um, you know the Western world was able to reincorporate uh, their heritage, basically their 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 academic heritage because of uh, because of what the um, Islamic scholars did in, in the Middle Ages. Amazing. Uh, okay, so today. Um, we're going to talk about symposium. I'm just going to do one because, like I said, the task of trying to, first of all, read all of these, pull all of the important information out of it, and then summarize it in a way that makes any sense from like, you know, two dozen different different multi-person conversations. Guys, I'm not doing it. Not doing it. So rather than starting um, chronologically, I just kind of started with symposium for a couple reasons. I've never read it. It's, it's also one of Plato's most famous, so I wanted to know why. All right, here we go. Uh, Plato's Symposium, written maybe 360 BC. Um, I'll give you, before I start reading quotes here, I'm going to give you a little bit of background. Story takes place, um, story takes place basically, well, how do I put this? There's a dinner party. There's a dinner party going on uh, at a gentleman named Agathon's house, and there's a bunch of people who are invited to uh, to the party, Socrates being one of them. And um, there's all sorts of interesting details about like the way that the Greeks partied at the time, and the way the way they talked about it. Like they, t- you know, it's hard for me. To, I don't I don't know where to begin here, but I want to tell you something funny. Um, well, let me let me read this summary first. I kind of created a little bit of a summary of, of the kind of start to finish, and it goes like this: Socrates was invited to a dinner party at Agathon's house. The plan was to feast and for each of their party to give a hymn or a praise to love. Love with a capital L, like the love the god or the goddess. And they're going to all give their peace about why they think the goddess or god love is so important. Now, Socrates wasn't able to attend the party. But the rest of the, of the uh, group, they, they went ahead and uh, got drunk and they, they feasted and they had a really rompous time. Now, Socrates said, look, I, I'm not able to come on the day of this party, but I'm free the next night, so I'm going to come the next night. So Socrates promises to return. Uh, they, they go ahead and have dinner the next night again, and when they do, this is the interesting bit. It's like this whole piece in the dialogue about the guys talking. They're like, hey, you know, everybody drunk, uh, drank a lot yesterday. They drank heavily, is what they say. And, um, you know, I, I, he's like, I'm afraid some of us aren't going to be into getting that drunk again. You know, we have to recover, basically. Basically, and um, it's it's interesting to hear that hear them talk about that. It's interesting that Plato put that in the dialogue. It's like, why is this important? We're going to talk about something else, but 
there's this whole bit here about these guys arguing about whether they should be drinking or not, or, or how much they should be drinking, and then they all agree that they aren't going to drink out of necessity to get drunk. What they are going to do is just let everyone drink as much as they want. And so the the idea is that like when they had these parties, and the plan was to get to get all these men together to talk about important ideas, and they're all looking forward to the debate. That that is, it's basically mandatory that when you go there, that everybody gets drunk and marry and speaks openly, and being drunk is part of it, and drinking heavily, being very drunk is part of it. I thought that was interesting, and Socrates is like, "Look, man, I got no interest in that. Um, I'll drink with you, but I'm not. I'm not getting smashed." And everyone's like, yeah, let's, let's, I agree. You know, we drank too much yesterday. It's probably a good idea. All right. So each one of the friends, they take turns giving their hymn to love or giving their praise of the God love. And then all the others are like poking fun at what their arguments were. So it's like they're in good humor. They're saying what they think. They're giving it their best shot, trying to convince everybody else. And then, then every other person takes their turn saying what they liked and didn't like, didn't like about what they said. And you imagine that that, process would be fun if everybody was friends and in you know good humor and uh, not getting upset you know you can imagine just a group of good friends you know just you know uh, ribbing each other you know it's like uh, not only are you going to have fun but you're going to strengthen your arguments so by the time you're done with this conversation you're going to hear what all these other people think you're going to get exposed to ideas that maybe you didn't think or angles that you didn't consider and you're you're going to be persuaded or not and and if you you know and even if you aren't persuaded you're going to know what other people might be thinking what their objections might be because all these other guys are bringing those ideas to the table you're going to be that much stronger um, at the end and your arguments are going to be that much tighter and it seems like that's that's the purpose of this you know we're going to get together we're going to we're going to you know have a battle of ideas in 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 good humor and uh, you know this isn't going to break down into fighting it's just a beautiful thing to see and so, so Socrates has his turn, but he doesn't actually do what everybody else does, which I think is kind of standard for Socrates. He's like, look, I'm not going to tell you what I think is great about the God love. What I'm going to do is tell you about a conversation I had with somebody else who was very wise on this subject. So even Plato, who uses Socrates to be his mouthpiece in the dialogues, so Plato doesn't appear in the story. Socrates does, his teacher but even Socrates is like, look, I'm, I'm going to be the mouthpiece for this other person who's not here today, this woman who I spoke with long ago about this topic, and I'm going to let her do the, do the talking for me. So you've got this double-removed situation where Plato's not actually doing the talking, and Socrates isn't doing the talking. These are the words of some third person, so it's, it's interesting, and it seems important, and it seems on purpose. It's like, look, I'm going to give you this argument. It didn't even come from me, but it was so strong, and it convinced me. I'm going to see if it convinces you. I mean, when was the last time you heard somebody say that like that? It just doesn't happen. You know, we're just so closed off. All right, so so after Socrates' speech, there's an uninvited guest that shows up, and he's super drunk, and he's looking to fight with Socrates, basically. You can imagine the angry drunk who comes in and ruins everybody's fun, and so this also happens in the dialogue at the end. This guy barges in, and he starts talking a bunch of shit, notices Socrates is there, just starts taking his vengeance on Socrates, but it turns out, you know, in his drunken state, 
the the truth is sort of flowing freely from his lips, and even though he's angry and he's pointing fingers at Socrates, it's pretty clear that the reason he is is because he's so impressed by Socrates and so convinced by Socrates' arguments. And we're not talking about the one in this dialogue, but seemingly all the other things that maybe he's overheard Socrates say or say in public in the past, he's so convinced of it that he's like, I'm jealous I'm jealous of Socrates' ability to spin, you know, logic and sense and, con- and to convince people. I'm jealous of his um, kind of manner of doing that, where he doesn't take credit for it. You know, he seems selfless and, you know, and all of the accolades and the great, and the, and the, the great opinion that people have of Socrates as a, as a result of that, he's jealous of that too. It's just like, you know, he, he doesn't make a good impression. He also makes it, you know, abundantly clear that in all of his hatred and vitriol pointed at Socrates is really just misguided um, praise of Socrates and jealousy and wanting to be, you know, noticed by Socrates and wanting to be like Socrates. It's one of that that sort of thing. That I also find funny because I'm not sure why it's even put in the dialogue. It's like this whole bit at the end where the drunk guy comes in and says this piece. To me, it seems completely unnecessary. It doesn't seem to add much to the um, to the uh, to the dialogue. Um, so let's see, let's see. Um, oh, so the point I was trying to get to is that it, it sort of seems to me like like Plato maybe included that to show a little bit of what was happening in Greece at the time, like the things that led up to Socrates actually being killed. Because it seems like maybe there were a lot of people like that who uh, thought thought poorly of Socrates or wanted him dead, for lack of a better word, or wanted him silenced, and it was because it was because Socrates was representing a way of being that was better than the way that they thought was virtuous, and it's like well, they didn't measure up to it. So Socrates was a judge, as Jordan Peterson uh, puts it. Like he talks about Jesus being a judge. He's like, every ideal is a judge. And so when you have, like in the Christian tradition, a person like Jesus, who's like this perfect man who doesn't sin and does and makes all the right decisions, including the one that, that results in him laying down his life, like the way Socrates did. Um, and, and so ha- having this image, this ideal, like a Jesus or Socrates, is a judge. And the reason it's a judge is because it shows you what's possible for yourself and what you aren't living up to. So we're not living up to the, to the way Socrates lived his life. We're not living up to the way Jesus lived his life. So every ideal is a judge. And people don't fucking like being judged, right? And we get immediately offensive and defensive uh, when that happens. And so it seems like Plato's pointing that out. Like, hey, man, Socrates was sort of a judge. He was an ideal, and people couldn't live up to it. And how did they solve that problem? Well, same way they solved Jesus, this problem of Jesus. They, had, they killed him. And they, by they, I mean the government, the authorities. Interesting. Those people who should be held to the highest standards, those people that should be, as Kyle said, leading by example. Um, and they aren't. Socrates is the one doing that. And Socrates is the one that shows the world that they're not doing that. That's why Socrates was killed. That's why Jesus was killed. All right, so here we go. Symposium time. So this is Plato's Symposium. Uh, Again, conversation written uh, with a bunch of friends talking at a dinner party about love, about the God 
or goddess love. Here we go. First guy says this. He says, For I mean to propose that each of us in turn, going from left to right, shall make a speech in honor of love. Phaedrus began by affirming that love is a mighty God and wonderful among gods and men, but especially wonderful in his birth. For he is the eldest of the gods, which is an honor to him, and a proof of his claim to this honor is that of his parents there is no memorial. Neither poet nor prose writer has ever affirmed that he had any. As Hesiod says, first chaos came, and then the broad-bosomed earth, the everlasting seed of all that is, and love. All right, I'll stop there for a second. So Phaedrus is saying, the god, the god love is the greatest, surely. And you can see that because he was the firstborn. Because the god of love was the first thing to come into being. And then he quotes Hesiod. Now, we, we read Hesiod in, in our prior prior podcast. We, we read this already in the pre-Socratic stuff. So we've talked about this, but here is the quote. First came chaos, and then broad-bosomed earth, and love. So those are the things that came first. And according to Hesiod, these three things came simultaneously. So chaos, earth, and love. Now chaos is that primordial thing that uh, represents united opposites, everything together, that 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 pinprick thing that existed before the Big Bang, that expanded and became everything, that one thing that was chaos. That and the earth and love. And so there's a way in understanding those things as being one, that those were the opposites that were together, that this is some sort of a holy trinity, um, a primordial holy trinity, that earth and love existed within chaos, and that when chaos separated, when the oneness separated, this is the very mystical thing, the one thing that, that everything comes from. It's a very mystical idea. that when that separated and became everything that existed, what was inside there was earth and love. So that might be the potential for the cosmos and, and, uh, and this thing called love. What is that? Uh, so let's, let's continue to read. He says, Love will make men dare to die for their beloved love alone and women as well as men. Of this, Alcistis, the daughter of Peleus, is a monument to all Hellas. Hellas is the word they use for Greece. For she was willing to lay down her life on behalf of her husband, when no one else would, although he had a father and mother. But the tenderness of her love so far exceeded theirs that she made them seem to be strangers in blood to their own son, and in name only related to him. And so noble did this action of hers appear to the gods, as well as to men, that among the many who have done virtu- vir- virtuously, she is one of the very few to whom, in admiration of her noble action, they have granted the privilege of returning alive to earth. Such exceeding honor is paid by the gods to the devotion and virtue of love. All right, I'll stop there just a second. So here, here Phaedrus is saying not only was love the first thing that was created, which it's just proof why it's so important. But also you've got this example of what love can do. And, and here you have this example of this woman who sacrifices her life willingly, the way Socrates did, right? Sacrificed his life willingly, the way Jesus did. Sacrificed his life willingly, voluntarily. So that's what this woman has done. Has done. And it, it, he, he says that she lays her life down for her husband, even though her husband's own mother and father wouldn't do that. 
And she, and by, and by sacrificing herself voluntarily, she so impressed the gods that they let her come back to earth alive again, which they never do. So in this example, um, again, I'm not familiar with that story or myth, if it is one, um, but Socrates and Plato and all this and all the group here talking were familiar with it. It's like what what she did out of love was such a great deed uh, that the gods let her let her come back to, to life. So not only was love the first thing created, but it's also this extremely powerful thing that when harnessed, even the gods are bowing to this woman. He goes on, he says, there are, um, these are my reasons for affirming that love is the eldest and noblest and mightiest of the gods and the chiefest author and giver of virtue in life and of happiness after death. For we all know that love is inseparable from Aphrodite. And if there were only one Aphrodite, there would be only one love. But as there are two goddesses, there must be two loves. All right, this is interesting. So this is something that in ancient Greek would understand, but you and I, you know, is a little bit hard to understand. So Aphrodite is one of the goddesses associated with love. So he's saying, look, there has to be at least two, two loves because we talked about love being created in the beginning with chaos, but there's also Aphrodite. She's the goddess of love. These are not the same. These are two different, two different deities. So there must be two different loves. So this is an interesting thing. I mean, you, you can think about like, um, in Greek, there's many words for love and, uh, and Eros is one of them. And Eros is another name for the god Cupid. So you've got love that is like sexual, lustful, procreative love. And that's different from other types of love. And there potentially are, are more than two uh, that, you know, they just don't come up in this dialogue. But we've talked about two, Aphrodite and the one that comes into being uh, uh, in the beginning with chaos. So he, he adds here that maybe there are, maybe there are two loves. Um, okay, so I'll continue here. He says, Now actions vary according to the manner of their performance. Take, for example, that which we are now doing, drinking, singing, and talking these actions, are not in themselves either good or evil, but they turn out in this way or that way according to the mode of performing them. And when well done, they are good, and when wrongly done, they are evil. And in like manner, not every love but only that which has, ha which has a noble purpose is noble and worthy of praise. The love who is the offspring of the common Aphrodite is essentially common and has no discrimination, being such as the meaner sort of men feel, and is apt to be of women as well as of the youths and is of the body rather than of the soul. The most foolish beings are the objects of this love, which desires only, only to gain an end but never thinks of accomplishing the end nobly, and therefore does good and evil quite indiscriminately. The goddess, of, the goddess who is his mother is far younger than the other, and she was born of the union of the male and the female and partakes of both. All right, so this is interesting. So here he's saying, he's saying, like, look, we're all, we're all getting together, we're having this party, we're drinking, we're, we're, we're you know, having this conversation, and there's a way in which we can do this that's evil. There's a way that we, which we can do this that's good. You know, we can all sit here and listen to each other and take each other seriously and be open-minded and try to understand the point of view of the other. We can do it in good humor and good faith and and learn from each other and learn from ourselves and be be open to our own errors and that sort of thing. And that's good. If that happens, we're all going to benefit from it. We're all going to have a good time. You know, this is going to be good. 
Or we could all get drunk, get angry at each other, bicker at each other, call each other names, close down our minds to you know uh, anything that the other people have to offer, and maybe in the end we're at bro- we're a brawling, we're we're at blows with one another, and you know you can see that the way in which we do this could make this a good thing or a bad thing. It's all about the way in which we go about it, and he says the same thing is true of love. So we, we just mentioned maybe there's two loves here. And there's a type of love that's of the body, and there's a type of love that maybe is of the soul, something like that. And the type of love that's of the body is something that might be that might be used, or it might possess you. It might be used for for an end. And he said he said that uh, this love, which desires only to gain an end, right? So you can imagine maybe uh, young people. Um, in a situation where maybe they manipulate one another for sex, and maybe that's the end. And all I want to do is, you know, have an orgasm, and then I'll go about my business. And you know people like that. Maybe you've been in those experiences a time or two yourself, where you're using love as an ends, and not and not, and not trying to understand what it is that you're feeling. Uh, not just using it as a tool to get what you want, but understand what it is that's happening. Um. And then the last thing that said here is interesting. He says that the goddess who is his mother is far younger than the other, and she was born of the union of male and female and partakes of both. So this is going to get interesting, but this is talking now about the goddess of love partaking of both the male and the female. So we'll get we'll get into that more, but it's also going to become a mystical sort of thing. So right now it doesn't make a lot of sense, but I'll, let's keep reading. He says... Evil is the vulgar lover who loves the body rather than the soul, inasmuch as he is not even stable, because he loves a thing which is in itself unstable. And therefore, when the bloom of youth, which he was desiring, is over, he takes wing and flies away, in spite of all his words and promises, whereas the love of the noble disposition is lifelong, for it becomes one with the everlasting. All right. That last sentence was another very mystical thing to say. He says, Whereas the love of the noble disposition is lifelong, for it becomes one with the everlasting. Just that last statement alone, something something becomes one with the everlasting. <laughs> it it presumes a couple things. It presumes that that the everlasting, whatever that is, the thing that doesn't die, the everlasting, that's something you might call God. He says it becomes one with that that the noble disposition of love becomes one with that. Again, so something that becomes one, that rings true to the mystic experience, that all things are one, or come from the same source. And being one with the everlasting means be- being one with God. And what God is, is the oneness. It's the chaos that we just talked about, the thing that was there in the beginning. That, you know, all opposites united, the thing from which, you know, the material world and consciousness, you know, emerges from. That's that's the everything that's everlasting. That's also the oneness. So here he's saying that the right sort of love, that, that approached in the right way, it becomes one with the everlasting. Okay, so, so we are starting to get mystical. Let's see where this goes. He says, And this is the reason why, in the first place, a hasty attachment is held to be dishonorable, because time is the true test of, of this as of most other things. And secondly, there is a dishonor in being overcome by the love of money or of wealth or of political power, where a man is frightened into surrender by the loss of them, 
or having experienced the benefits of money and political corruption, is unable to rise above the seductions of them. All right, so he's painting a different picture here. It's like just like this idea of a love of the body or, or a love as a means to an end, that there's a way of looking at love that's dishonorable. So how do we separate this part, the love of money, right, or of wealth or of political power, the love of power? So this is love too. You know, what do we, what do we make of this? You know, we're, while we're having this conversation about how great the God love is, what about this? What about people that are possessed with a love of money or of power? Or the people that, are, that have an experience of that and can't ever rise above it because it's so seductive that they can't ever give, get above it. So there's a way in which love can be bad. Dishonorable is what, is what he says. And we can all see that. This is something that exists today. You know, um, corruption, political corruption. Uh, the, work, the root of that problem is money. That's what it boils down to each and every time. All right, so so now we get another speaker, and this is a person's name who I have not, I've only read, I've not yet tried to pronounce because it's ridiculous. So let's give this a go. Um, all right, here we go. Here's my best my best go. The next guy speaks. His name is Yuri Zamakis. It's probably wrong. E R Y X I M A C H U S. I'm going to go with Yuri Zamakis. All right, so he speaks next. He says this. I think that he has rightly distinguished two kinds of love. But my art further informs me that the double love is not merely an affection of the soul of man towards the fair or towards anything, but is to be found in the bodies of all animals and in productions of the earth, and I may say in all that is. Such is the conclusion which I seem to have gathered from my own art of medicine, whence I learn how great and wonderful and universal is the deity of love, whose empire extends over all things, divine as well as human. All right, so we'll stop there for a second. So Yuri Zamakis is a doctor, and he's like, look, I'm going to come at this, at this uh, debate from a different direction. Uh, from all of the experience I've had with medicine and healing sickness and disease and seeing how it, these things appear in humans and animals and in the world, they happen all over the place. Just like love is seen all over the place, not just in human beings and not just in the ways that we've talked about so far, but we see them, we see them too in animals. We see love even in the way, in the, in the way that nature exists in, 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 you know, in the earth. So he'll talk more about what he means by that. But he's like, look, love is, is, is the, a wonderful and universal deity whose empire extends over all things, divine as well as human. So love is something that that can be applied to hu- human beings and to the gods and to the cosmos. So what does he mean? What does he mean there? He says, "For medicine may be regarded generally as the knowledge of the loves and desires of the body, and how to satisfy them or not. And the best physician is he who is able to separate fair love from foul, or to convert one into the other." And he who knows how to eradicate and how to implant love, whichever is required, and can reconcile the most hostile elements in the Constitution and make them loving friends, is skillful practitioner. So here he's talking about his, his job, his profession, uh, medicine. And he says, look, really what medicine boils down to is understanding the loves and desires of the body 
Okay, so what is the what does the body need? Okay, he's he's basically saying that's what the body loves, and uh, what the body doesn't need is what the body doesn't love, and if what a physician does is to find out what it is the body desires, what it is that the body loves, and then to give the body those things, or to convert those things the body doesn't love into something that the body loves. Now you can imagine that's all you know, as clear as mud, but you can imagine. In, in like looking at medicine today, that that's sort of what, what's happening, right? So it's like if I could figure out what the body, quote, loves as a doctor, what am I going to do? I'm going to test your blood. I'm going to find out what your, um, you know, the, the, the vitamin and the mineral levels are in your blood and what your blood count is and all that sort of thing. And I know that the body is most efficient and most healthy when it has a certain amount of all of these things. And if I can find out what you're deficient in, like vitamin D or red blood cell count, or something like that, or, you know, a hormone like testosterone or something. And I can go in and give you those things. I can give the body what it loves. Then suddenly it's operating well again because it has, because it has what it was missing. So there's this idea of, of wholeness, let's say, that, that, that love is sort of the solution to. And then another thing he says is I can convert those things into the other. So maybe I go into the body and I can make it produce something that it's missing. If I can do that, then then I can restore it to health. So it's all about understanding what the needs are of the body. And he calls that what it what the body loves and desires. That's an interesting way of looking at it. All right, so let's so do continue. All right, so Eurizamakis says, anyone who pays the least attention to the subject will also perceive that in music there is the same reconciliation of opposites. Thus, music, too, is concerned with the principles of love and their application to harmony and rhythm. Again, in the essential nature of harmony and rhythm, there is no difficulty in discerning love, which has not yet become double. All right, so, so, he, so he talks about love through the lens of medicine. And now he says, look, even in music you can see this. And he starts talking about this idea of harmony and rhythm, which is interesting. So in the in the medical perspective, he's talking about giving the body what it loves and desires. With music, it's like he's talking about giving the notes what they love and desire. And what they love and desire is are the notes that are complementary to themselves. And that's where the harmony and the rhythm come from. Something like that. And he says, Whence I infer that in music, in medicine, in all other things, human uh, as which as divine, both loves ought to be noted as far as may be, for they are, for they are both present. So now he's, he, he's saying, okay, so there are these two different types of love that Phaedrus told us about earlier. And he's saying that in music, he says there's no difficulty in discerning love which has not yet become double. So now he's actually ta- saying that these two different types of love are really one thing in this instance of music. So what does that mean exactly? And then he says, he says in music as within medicine, um, both loves ought to be noted as far as may be, for they are both present. Okay, so both types of love, the, the noble one and the dishonorable one, the one that, the one that wants to use love as an ends, that, that uses as manipulation or, or for the self, and one that, that is higher or more spiritual. We haven't exactly got into that yet. All right, so he says, the course of the seasons is also full of both these principles, and when, as I was saying, the elements of hot and cold, moist and dry, attain the harmonious love of one another, and blend in temperance and harmony, 
They bring to men, animals, and plants health and plenty, and do them no harm. Whereas the wanton love getting the upper hand and affecting the seasons of the year is very destructive and injurious, being the source of pestilence and bringing many other kinds of disease on animals and plants. For hoarfrost and hail and blight spring from the excess and disorders of these elements of love, which to know in relation to the revolutions of the heavenly bodies and the seasons of the year is termed astronomy. All right, another mouthful. All right, so Erizamachus is not only saying that you can see the truth of love in medicine and in the human body, but you can see it in the gods, you can see it in nature, you can see it in music, and you can see it in astronomy. And the point he's making here is that he's saying that the type of love that's noble, um, that's the type of love that takes opposites and it, it harmonizes them. And he puts it in an interesting way. He says... Um, he says, hot and cold, moist and dry, attain the harmonious love of one another and blend in temperance. So the opposites together, he says that having them united is a harmony. and The harmony is love, just like bringing two people together. You call that love, right, voluntarily. And bringing them to coming, them, coming together on their own, that that's also voluntarily, that they blend in temperance and harmony. And that that brings men and animals and plants health and plenty. And Aristotle will say things like this in the future, you know, after this point. You know, he, he talks about the golden mean, everything in, uh, you know, in proportion. And, and, um, and he, it's all about harmony. And so having, having these things existing together in whatever way they can, that that balance is harmony. This reminds you of a yin and yang type of a conversation. And that when things are balanced, everything does well. Everything flourishes. Not too cold, not too not too cold, not too hot, not too much. And then he says, whereas wanton love, getting the upper hand and affecting the seasons of the year, is destructive and injurious and causes pestilence. So he's saying, look, when things aren't harmonious, when love is being used, um, you know, for manipulation or for an end or for gain, that what happens is the interest is not in harmony. The interest is not really in love. The interest is in something for yourself. It's in, you know. So something to manipulate and get what you want, something like that. Now, what happens there, he said, if there's too much, too much heat, let's say, um, then, you know, the crops dry up and you don't have food and there's pestilence. He's like, so when you don't have harmony, things are, are going to break down. And he's saying that what that is is basically the same thing as, as not having love. When you don't have the harmony, things aren't, aren't coming together as they should and all sorts of trouble is going to happen. And that's true in medicine, and that's true in astronomy, and that's true in music. So it's interesting making that connection of harmony with love, but here we go. He says, And the love more especially which is concerned with the good, and which is perfected in company with temperance and justice, whether among gods or men, has the greatest power, and is the source of all our happiness and harmony, and makes us friends with the gods who are above us, and with one another. So that's interesting. So love and harmony that makes us friends with the gods and with one another. And you can kind of you can kind of understand that. You know, if we if if, you know, the rains are coming and the crops are growing and uh, everything is going like it's supposed to, we don't have pestilence or plague or drought, we're going to consider the gods our friends, you know, and putting ourselves in the in the ancient Greek mindset, we're going to consider the gods are smiling on us and everything's working as it should, right? 
And if everything's working as it should and everything has enough, everybody has enough to eat, we're not taking up arms against one another. We're not trying to kill each other either. So it makes us friends with the gods and with one another. Love conceived of as harmony does that. That's really interesting. All right, let's see. Let's see, let's see. Um, okay. There's another interesting quote that I want to read just to answer a question that Kyle posed to me the other day. We were talking about race in an, a, a, another episode of the podcast, a surprise, surprise, and he said, did the Greeks really think that uh, that race wasn't really a, like, uh, you know, race wasn't a, a thing that made people different from one another? Like, they didn't really conceive of race that way? And I was explaining to him that, it doesn't really seem that way. And he was like, well, where, where do you get that information from? And I'm like, well, I, it, you know, you can see it in Aristotle and you can see it in, and he see it in Herodotus. And, um, I just happened to, upon a quote in Plato that, that actually kind of answers that same question or, or comes across that way. So here's for you, Kyle, this quote, uh, comes from the symposium. And it says, since all the gods, excuse me, since of all the gods, he is the best friend of men the helper and the healer of the ills, which are the, the great impediment to the happiness of the race. So there you go. The happiness of the race. So coming from 400 BC in the Western tradition, the idea of race was of the human race. It wasn't about, you know, they had ways of talking about tribes and barbarians and people that weren't like them. But race was not the word that was used. Race was something that unified all human beings in ancient Greece. And Here's an example from Plato. So it's a little bit of a um, tangent, but that one's for you, Kyle. All right. So the next guy uh, enters the conversation now. His name is um, Aristophanes. Aristophanes professed to open another vein of discourse. He had a mind to praise love in another way, unlike that of either uh, Pausinius or um, uh, Arisamicus, whose name I'm still struggling to pronounce. All right, so here's Aristophanes. He says, In the first place, let me treat of the nature of man and what has happened to it. For the original human nature was not like the present, but different. The sexes were not two as they are now, but originally three in number. There was man, woman, and the union of the two, having a name corresponding to this double nature, which had once a real existence, but is now lost, and the word androgynous is only preserved as a term of reproach. So apparently in ancient Greece, to be androgynous was uh, was a word that was used kind of like an insult. Like, you know, what are you? Are you a, are you a man or are you a woman? You know, you, you kind of kind of imagine the long-haired hippie in the 70s, get, you know, or in the 60s having their buttoned-up 1950s father, you know, telling them to, to cut their hair and get a job, that they look like a woman. You know, this this androgyn, androgyny thing. So it's, it's interesting that the ancient Greeks had this, uh, opinion of of people that didn't fit you know well into one category, um, and that you can see even even from Plato's mouth that uh, it was sort of an insult you know, but in any case the important thing here is that we're bringing up this this way of understanding human beings and it seems to be mythical you know that 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 we understood at least you know the ancient Greeks understood that in the beginning human beings were not two sorts but three. Uh, man, woman, and then a combination of people that existed as a man and a woman. So what the heck is that? So he says, in the second place, the primeval man was round. So this is interesting. Listen to this. His back and sides forming a circle, 
and he had four hands and four feet and one head with two faces looking opposite ways, set on a round neck and precisely alike. Also, four ears, two privy members, that's sexual organs, and the, re- and the re- remainder to correspond. He could walk upright as men do now, backwards or forwards as he pleased. He could also roll over and over at a great pace, turning on his four hands and four feet, eight in all, like tumblers going over and over with their legs in the air. This, this was when he wanted to run fast. Now the sexes were three, and such as I have described them, because the sun, moon, and earth are three. And the man was originally the child of the sun, the woman of the earth, and the man-woman of the moon, which is made up of sun and earth. And they were all round and moved round and round like their parents. All right, I'm going to stop here for a second. There's just a lot going on. So what you can see here is all these crazy details of this androgynous person, this third type of human that was man and woman together, that in some, some mythological story about the beginning of time, they have this idea uh, and he, he goes to this great length to describe what this man-woman creature looked like and how it got around. That's pretty interesting, man. <laughs> like, I don't know why uh, you go through the trouble to describe it, but the important thing is that there's these three, three types of humans in the beginning, man-woman and man-woman. And the fact that he goes on to describe how thing had a face on its, on its front and back of its head and it had, you know, four arms and four feet, and if it needed to move fast, it rolled around, you know, uh, like a wheel. It's just, just, just you can see the mythological elements are just kind of, kind of amazing. And why he goes to this extent to describe it's interesting. But the answer he gives is that um, he says that sexes were three uh, because the sun and the moon and the earth are three. So it's like we've got these three things that exist, you know, highest level in the cosmos, and human beings correspond to that somehow. So this is this idea that we talked about many times, as above, so below, that, that you know, and that's also a, a Greek idea, is that um, what, whatever the heavens are like, that human beings are like a microcosm of that, or something like whatever the cosmos is like. And he's saying, look, the cosmos has the sun, the moon, and the earth. And so human beings are like that. Human beings are three things in one. We're man, woman, and man, woman. So, so it's very interesting. Um, okay, so and then he goes on. He says, Terrible was their might and strength, and the thoughts of their hearts were great. And they made an attack upon the gods. Of them is told the tale of uh, Adis, O-T-Y-S, and uh, and uh, Phaeltes, who, as Homer says, dared to scale heaven and would have laid hands upon the gods. Doubt reigned in the celestial councils should they kill them and annihilate the race with thunderbolts as they had done with the giants. Then there would be an end of the sacrifices and worship which men offered to them. But on the other hand, the gods could not suffer their insolence to be unrestrained. All right, so this is interesting. So these androgynous half-man, half-woman people that they're talking about that were there at the beginning of time when men were created that they were very strong and that they had great, great thoughts and that they and that they made an attack upon the gods. Okay, so I don't know what comes to your mind here, but um, the Tower of Babel comes to mind from the Bible. So you've got these people who, who have great thoughts in their hearts. They want to build this great building that's going to reach all the way to heaven. They're going to do this impossible thing. And God says, no, he's going to smite them and, you know, lay them low and, and you know... Um, give them all these different languages so they can't communicate with each other. 
uh, or the Great Flood, you know, where, where if you take the Babylonian Sumerian version of the story, uh, God, the God des- decides to kill human beings with a flood, um, not because they were evil, but because they were noisy, because they were loud. And, uh, you know, the argument against killing them is the same argument that, that uh, is brought up here. It's like, why should we kill them? Because if we kill them, who's going to sacrifice to the gods? How are the gods going to get their their sustenance? You know, the blood sacrifices and the burnt sacrifices and the gold and all the things that human beings are giving, quote-unquote, giving to the gods. Who's going to do that if we kill them all? That's, what, that's the argument they're having here in the myth. All right, so he goes on. He says, At last, after a good deal of, ref- of reflection, Zeus discovered a way. He said, Methinks I have a plan which will humble their pride and improve their manners. Men shall continue to exist, but I will cut in numbers. This will have the advantage of making them more profitable to us. They shall walk upright on two legs, and if they continue insolent, uh, we will not be quiet. I will split them again, and they shall hop about on a single leg. He spoke and cut men in two, uh, like a sorb apple which is halved for pickling, or as you might divide an egg with a hair. And as he cut them one after another, he bade Apollo give the face and the half of the neck and turn in order that the man might contemplate the section of himself. He would have thus learned a lesson of humility. Apollo was also bidden to heal their wounds and compose their form. So he gave a turn to the face and pulled the skin from the, from the sides uh, all over that which in our language is called the belly, like the purse which draw in. And he made one mouth at the center, which he fastened in a knot, the same which is called the navel. He also molded the breast and took out most of the wrinkles, much as the shoemaker might smooth leather upon a last. He left a few, however, in the region of the belly and navel, as a memorial of the primeval state. After the division, the two parts of man, which desiring his other half, uh, came together and throwing their arms about one another, entwined in mutual embrace, longing to grow into one. So ancient is the desire of one another, which is implanted in us, reuniting our original nature, making one of two, and healing the state of man. Jesus. Okay, so let's let's start back here. So Zeus is basically saying, "Look, I know we have to do something about these uh, about these people, but we don't want to get rid of our our the people that are giving us offerings and and praying to us and all that. So how about this? How about we lay them low, just like God did with the people in the Tower of, of Babel." when he confused their languages. He said, how about we lay them low? We take these, these androgynous people and we split them in two. We take the man half and the woman half and we split them in two. We'll have Apollo heal them up. And you can see evidence that this happened because if you, all you have to do is look at your belly button. See, that's the place where God split you in two from your other half. And, uh, and Apollo healed you up and, and now we have man and woman instead of this androgynous thing that used to be greater and stronger than than you know, the separate versions together. We don't have to worry about that anymore. We're going to lay them low. We're going to split them in half and make them like that. And if they fuck with us too much more, we'll split them in half again, he says, and make them hop around on one leg. It's interesting. All right. All right. And then this this note here about reuniting our original nature, making one of two. Um, so this is, a, this is a, a remark, obviously, that, it has to do with sexual intercourse. So you you know we we talk about that today that the beast with two backs. You know that 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 a person becomes one. We talk about that in the marriage ceremony when we when when we are married that that man and woman become one and that's symbolized in this sex act. And so this is a this is a remark here that when people when people join together in sexual union 
that they're reuniting the, to their original nature. And so the, the myth, it might actually be something a little different than what this guy is describing. It's, it's not that human beings were made man and woman and androgynous in the beginning, but actually man and woman were one thing originally. They were androgynous originally and split into two. So that actually corresponds to all of the other myths and mystic you know, uh, intuitions that we've talked about, where whether we're talking about the Greeks or the Mesopotamians and their stories about the creation of the universe, it's always one thing. It's originally one thing together and split into many things or separated into many things. And then again, as above, so below. This is what we're seeing with human beings. According to the Greeks, they were once originally together, and then they were split into two, man and woman. So our original state of unity is coming together in love, something like that. All right, so he goes on. He says, Each of us, when separated, having one side only, is but the indenture of a man, and he is always looking for his other half. All right, I'm going to stop there only to point out, we still use that phrase today when we talk about love. Our, our better half, our other half, we still use in modern language this idea that comes from this ancient Greek myth that human beings used to be man and woman together. Like Jordan Peterson said when he talked about you know the, um, the, the primordial egg and the Ouroboros, that original chaos, that original oneness, he says it was, the, it was the union of the opposites, masculine and feminine, and all things can roll up into these categories. And when they were joined together, that was, that was the thing that we can call God. That was the thing that everything comes from. The Ouroboros is what is the word Jordan Peterson uses to, to talk about that. And we see it here in this really interesting way while they're talking about love. So let's get to that. All right, he says, And when, and when one of them meets with his other half, the actual half of himself, the pair are lost in an amazement of love and friendship and intimacy and would not be out of the other's sight as I may say, even for a moment. These are the people who passed their whole lives together, yet they could not explain what they desire of one another. All right, so I'll point this out. Anybody who's ever been so deeply entrenched in puppy dog love that when, you, that when you're in the company of the person you love, the entire world fades away. There's all sorts of instances in my own life with my wife that I can, I can remember here where I, I, I was in that situation where... The experience of her was my entire world. It, it literally outshined the background. Like I didn't it didn't even matter where I was because I did I wasn't exactly anywhere. I was with her. That was that was my world. Anybody who's been in that in that situation where you're completely overwhelmed by it, you can understand what he's saying here. He's saying when you have found your other half, that you are lost in an amazement of love. Yeah. Fucking yes, that's it. Um, and he said that that you know when you do that, when you find your other half and you and you feel complete, he said those are the people that that pass their entire lives together and still can't understand what it is they want from the other person. Like I, I want the other person, but I don't know what it is I want from you. It's just you that I want. Why? Because you're completing me in some way. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. 
All right, he says, suppose Hephaestus. Now, let me just stop for those people who don't know Hephaestus. Hephaestus was a Greek guy, but he was the, um, he was like the, uh, um, what do you call it? The guy that made the weapons and armor, and uh, he's like the, the forge guy. What, what do they call that? The smith. He was like the smith of the gods. And he made all the, you know, all the crazy weapons that they used, and, and you know, he, he was that guy. He, he made things. All right, so it says, suppose Hephaestus with his instruments to come to the pair who are lying side by side and to say to them, what do you people want of one another? They would be unable to explain. And suppose further that when he saw their perplexity, he said, Do you desire to be wholly one, always, day and night, to be in one another's company? For if this is what you desire, I am ready to melt you into one and let you grow together, so that being two you shall become one. And while you live a common life as if you were a single man, and after your death in the, in the world below, still be one departed soul instead of two. I ask whether this is what you lovingly desire, and whether you are satisfied to attain this. There is, there is not a man of them who, when he heard the proposal, would deny or would not acknowledge that this meeting and melting into one another, this becoming one instead of two, was the very expression of his ancient need. And the reason is that human nature was originally one, and we were, we were a whole, and the desire and pursuit of the whole is called love." Jesus. Okay, so that's where he wraps up. And man, is that good. Okay, so he's like, look, if, if, if the god Hephaestus, who can make and do anything, if he comes down and says to the, to the lovers, you know, would, you know, what do you want from one another? How about I just somehow make you one person? Is that, would that be good? Is that what you want? And the answer is yes, unequivocally yes. So that even, even if I die in, in, in the next world, whatever that may be, um, I'm still with you. I'm still one. He, he explains the reason why that is the desire of the people who people who love one another um, to become one instead of two. He says. Um, he says the reason is that human nature was originally one, and we were a whole. And the desire and pursuit of the whole is called love. So let's break that down and do a couple chunks. The reason is that human nature was originally one. Okay, so. This is obviously a callback to the idea that human beings, male and female, according to this Greek myth, in the beginning when they were first created, they were just one thing, both male and female. So that goes, that rings back to uh, Hesiod's story, the guy that Phaedrus was talking about in the very beginning, about the, the myth of the creation of the universe, that all of that came from chaos. Chaos was the one thing, all opposites united into one thing. And love was a part of that one thing, but it wasn't separate from it. And he says that is how human nature is. It's this one thing. And that is what the mystic experience tells you. That's what the psychedelic loving hippies will tell you. That's what the, you know, the Vedanta Hindu gurus will tell you. Um, you know, and so many religions and philosophers will tell you that as far as we can tell, God is the thing that is all opposites united. It's the thing, subject and object together, whatever that means. And all of, all of the cosmos and consciousness comes from that. And he's saying that human beings, again, just like, just like we've said many times where we talk about uh, Hermes Trismegistus in this, in this famous Greek phrase, it's as above, so below, that what they're saying is, as God is, this chaos, the oneness, the thing that that was opposites united, that the cosmos was born from, that you and I were born from, 
the potential for things to come into being, whatever that is. That oneness, that's the nature of God. And that same oneness is the nature of man. It's our opposites united, feminine and masculine together, subject and object together. As above, so below. As God is, so so is so is you know human beings. And so that that's what he means when he says that our nature was originally one. It's tied right back to the beginning where we started and in you know that quote from Hesiod. He said, We were a whole. And the desire and pursuit of that whole is called love. Okay, so that's the second bit we need to talk about. The pursuit of that wholeness is called love. Okay, so this reminds me of it reminds me of selflessness because that's something that I think of when I think about love, like love for my children. What would I not do for my children? I would I would give them anything. I'd give them the food off my plate, the the clothes off my back. You know, I, I would suffer and die for them willingly with a smile on my face. Maybe not a smile, but I would do it unquestionably. So sacrifice is something that's tied to this idea of love. You know, I'm going to give something that I might have for myself to somebody else. That's only something that you do out of out of love. Well, it's, the, it's only something you do voluntarily out of love, right? And the desire to be whole is called love, right? That's what, that's what he's saying. And so the idea is that when you give yourself wholly to another person, when you become selfless in that way, that's what we mean by love, by the type of love that... that you know, we have good things to say about. Not the dishonorable kind we were talking about earlier, but the, but the kind that, that, that's honorable, pure. The kind that Phaedra started off talking about in the beginning was the greatest of all the gods. That's, that's the thing we're talking about. And so the desire to be one, whether that's human beings in a, you know, sexual embrace or, you know, in some spiritual way giving their, giving their selves to one another, um, it's that sacrifice of self to self. That, that's what makes you one person. And here's, the, here's a good example. I brought up my kids earlier and being willing to die for them and so forth. And if you're a parent, I don't have to explain that to you. You understand. There's this thing, this instinct that we have as human beings for self-preservation. You know, the idea that I'm going to uh, continue to live. That's the strongest urge that I have. That's true for everybody. Until you have kids. Um, if you're a responsible parent and you do what you're supposed to do, you identify with your children as you're meant to, as most people do, you understand that. And then it no longer becomes about you. Your life becomes about them, that you are living for them. You become their servants in a way. And uh, in the way that you know the Bible talks about Jesus washing the feet of his apostles, even though he's their master, that's the kind of servant you become to your children. And you do it voluntarily. And what's, it was, and what's interesting is in a situation like that, um, let's paint the picture like this. Imagine, imagine you have an opportunity to, I'm trying to think of a good example here. Okay, so imagine your child is walking out on an icy lake, and the ice is thin, and it cracks, and it breaks, and they fall through. And you know it's a dangerous lake, and that the ice isn't isn't thick, and you may not even make it as far as your child who weighs 30 pounds, let's say. You might not make it as far as they did before you fall into that lake. And the chances of you dying are almost certain. If it were not your child, 
there's a very good chance that you don't take that risk because self-preservation is too much of an, of an instinct. You can't risk your life to save some stranger. Now, if it was your child, you are going to be in that lake without thinking about it faster than you can say, I can't come up with anything clever. You're going to be in that lake. You, you know, if it means that you're going to freeze to death trying to pull your child out of that water and save their life, that's the cost, and, and it's acceptable. And so what's happening here is this. This desire for you to preserve your life is transferred to your child, right? So the same person who says, I'm going to let that stranger die in the water. It was their dumb mistake going out there. I'm not going to die over this. I'm going to, I'm going to call 911 and go about my business. That, that that thought doesn't occur to you anymore because the person who's drowning and freezing to death in the water is not a stranger. It's not even your child. It is yourself. And that is how a parent sees it. That is how a parent sees it. So my desire to preserve my life, in that case, means that I'm going to die saving my kid from the water because my life is my child's life. And if I have to die to save them, that's self-preservation. So my instinct for self-preservation is not for my life now. It's for my children's life. Now, I have two children. So my soul is split into, into three, you might say. And I would die for both of them. So you have this interesting thing where I am not just myself anymore in some psychological way, in some spiritual way. I am myself and my children. And so the thing that I would call my love for them is something that kind of makes us one thing. And it's true for my wife as well. So you might say that my soul was split into four. And there are friends and family members that I would die for as well. So you might say my soul is split, you know, further further than that. You know, for the Harry Potter fans, you might say I've got horcruxes everywhere, just scattered all about. And so this is what I mean, that that there is a way in which you you do feel that you're, yourself to be one with other human beings to the point where you would throw your self-preservation, your most important instinct, out the window because you feel as though you are you are the same thing. Whew, boy, I don't know if I can get any more mystical than that. So there it is. All right. At, at this point in the dialogue, we finally hear from Socrates. We finally get to hear from Socrates. So this is where Plato was building to. Um, here we go. So Socrates, he's actually in this context telling a story about a conversation he had with a lady named, uh, oh boy, here we go. Uh, Diotima? Diotima? I don't know. Let's go with Diotima. And this was one of these wise people that Socrates went and encountered who claimed to be wise and he wanted to learn from them to see if he was as the, uh, as the oracle at Delphi told him he was, the wisest man you know in the world. Um, Socrates, of course, felt like he didn't know shit and uh, maybe that's why the oracle at Delphi and the god Apollo believed that he was the wisest because he was the only human being that acknowledged he didn't know shit. You know, in his ignorance, that made him the wisest man. Um, so he talks to this lady, uh, Diotima. And here we go. He says, well, I said, love is surely admitted by all to be a great God, by those who know or by those who do not know. And then he says, uh, forgive me, so that was Diotima asking. And he says, by all. And she says, and how, Socrates? She said with a smile, 
Can love be acknowledged to be a great God by those who say that he is not a God at all? And who are they? I said. She says, you and I are two of them. How can that be? I said. It is, it is, quite, uh, it is quite intelligible, she replied. For you yourself would acknowledge that the gods are happy and fair, of course. You would, would to say that any God was not. Certainly not, I replied. And you mean by the happy, those who are the possessors of things good or fair? Socrates says, yes. She says, and you admit that love, because he was in want, desires those good and fair things of which he is in want. Socrates says, yes, I did. She says, but how can he be a god who has no portion in what is either good or fair? Socrates says, impossible. Then you see that you also deny the divinity of love. All right, so I'll stop there. So here you have uh, Diotima, however you want to say her name, doing what Socrates does to other people, but doing it to Socrates, asking him a bunch of questions about love, um, getting him to agree to these premises about the things that he b- either thinks or doesn't think, to, to basically boil this down to the point where, where she says, look, I'm not sure you think that love is actually a god. You know, so we... Started in the beginning talking about how love was there in the beginning, that it was the greatest of all the gods, and you can see it in all of nature and music and all this sort of stuff. And we get to this point where, you know, we, we did have that little tangent where we said that love might be two things, and there's these two different gods and, and so forth. And we get to this point where, where she's like, look, do we even think that love is a god exactly? And she gets to the point where she convinces Socrates that maybe, that maybe he doesn't even think that. So when she says, then you see that you also deny the divinity of love. Okay. And Socrates says, what then is love? I ask. Is he mortal? She says, no. What then? As in, as in the former instance, he is neither mortal nor immortal, but in a mean between the two. What is he, Diadema? Is he a great spirit, a demon? And like all spirits, uh, he is intermediate between the divine and the mortal? He is the mediator who spans the chasm which divides them, and therefore in him all is bound together, and through him the arts of the prophet and the priest, their sacrifices and mysteries and charms, and all prophecy and incantation find their way. For God mingles not with man, but through love. All the intercourse and converse of God with man, whether awake or asleep, is carried on. The wisdom which understands this is spiritual. All right, so... Let's pump the brakes for a second. There's all kinds of interesting stuff happening here. But the important thing is, Socrates is saying, look, maybe you've convinced me that love isn't exactly a god. And if so, what, what is it? Is it mortal? Is it immortal? Is it a spirit? You know, what, how am I supposed to understand this? And she says, he's neither mortal or immortal, but he's a mean between the two. And Socrates is like, okay, he's like an intermediary between the divine and the mortal. And it, and it, spans the chasm, she said, which divides them. So it's the thing that connects the mortal world from the divine. It's the thing that connects man to God. That's love. So now we're talking about love like this. What does that mean? Love is the thing that joins together things so different as God and man. Um, And, she says, all is bound together by it. Everything is bound together by love. And she goes so far as to say, through love, that all of the arts of the prophets, the priests, their sacrifices and mysteries and charms, all of the the mysteries of God and religions, that all boils down to love. 
She says, For God mingles not with man, but through love. And all the intercourse and conversation between God and man, you know, whether awake or asleep, all of that is done through love. So that's interesting. So she's talking about love being something that joins together the creator with its creation. It's something that joins together, you might say, opposites. Um, heaven and earth, you know, masculine and feminine. So we're starting to talk about love in the same way that, that Hesiod did in the beginning when Phaedrus was talking about, uh, you know, in the beginning. The, the God was all together. God was chaos. And love was in, was in that God. And when... And when when chaos was separated into all of the creation, all the things that exist, that love is the thing that did that and holds them all together. That love is something to do with the connection of the things that were separated from the oneness. Now we're getting very mystical here. Love is the evidence that we're all one thing, somehow. And she says, the wisdom which understands this is spiritual. All right. He says, then love, or she says, then love may be described generally as the love of the everlasting possession of the good that is the most true. Then if this be the nature of love, can you tell me further, she said, what is the manner of the pursuit? What are they doing who show all this eagerness and heat, which is called love? And what is the object which they have in view? Answer me. Socrates says, nay, Diadema. I replied, if I had known, I should not have wondered at your wisdom. Neither should I have come to learn from you about this very matter. Well, she said, I will teach you. The object which they have in view is birth and beauty, whether a body or soul. He says, I do not understand you. The oracle requires an explanation. And she says, I will make my meaning dearer, she replied. I mean to say that all men are bringing to the birth in their bodies and in their souls. There is a certain age at which human nature is desirous of procreation. Procreation which must be in beauty and not in deformity. And this procreation is the union of man and woman and is a divine thing. For conception and generation are an immortal principle in the mortal creature. All right, so there's more, but let me just stop there. Amazing. Okay, so... She says, I mean to say that all men are, are bringing to the birth in their bodies and in their souls. So everybody is bringing something into being, whether in your body or in your soul. Um, she says, there's a certain age at which humans become desirous of procreation. You know, we all, we all know that if you're maybe beyond the age of 27, let's say. You know, that, you know, that is an instinct, you know, to, to give birth to something. You've all felt that instinct even before, you know, when, when you all have, when you have an artistic impulse, when you want to create something, when you want to draw a picture, when you want to build something. We all have this desire of procreation, of bringing things into being. And she says, in beauty, which is interesting because she says, not in deformity. And the implication seems to be that man and woman by themselves are some slashed up, you know, slasher movie, uh, you know, uh, grew, you know, gruesome sort of thing that uh, that exists in a way that's not natural. That they've been chopped up and they don't look like they should. That they're deformed. That they should be one. They should be together. And that's their natural. That's their natural form. So she's like, you come together. You bring the man and woman back together into their into their their completeness, their wholeness, their oneness. And in doing so, you give birth. 
All right, so... All right, so he, she continues. For love, Socrates, is not as you imagine. The love of the beautiful only. What then? The love of generation and of birth in beauty. Yes, I said. Yes, indeed, she replied. But why of generation? Socrates says, because the mortal creature... It's because to the mortal creature, generation is a sort of eternity and immortality. And if, as has been already admitted, love is of the everlasting possession of the good, all men will necessarily desire immortality together with good. Wherefore, love is of immortality. Okay, so we're talking now about this desire to procreate or to bring things into being and how this is an expression of love that's sort of it's sort of natural, and maybe it's impossible to even resist um, that we have this desire to generate something. And she's like, "Why? What is that? You know, why does love bring people together to have children? Why is that? Is it like that?" And she said, "Because what we love is not, you know, only the beautiful or only the good necessarily. What we love is eternity. It's immortality. It's the desire to continue." Wherefore, love is of immortality, she says. All right, let's continue. All this she taught me at various times when she spoke of love. And I remember her once saying to me, What is the cause, Socrates, of love and the attendant desire? See you, see you not how all animals, birds, as well as beasts, in their desire of procreation are in agony when they take the infection of love, which begins with the desire of union. Whereto is added the care of offspring, on whose behalf the weakest and ready to battle against the strongest even to the utmost, and to die for them, and will let themselves be tormented with hunger, or suffer anything in order to maintain their young. So this is interesting. So here she's just pointing out the degree to which people will suffer uh, in order to be able to continue, meaning that we would sacrifice everything, even our own lives, for our children, just like I described earlier, out of love. Why? Because what it means is that I continue. What it means is that experience continues. Consciousness continues. Whatever the thing is that I am gets to continue on into the future. And if that means I have to sacrifice my own existence, so be it. So what love is, is a desire to be immortal. It's, it's something that joins us together, and, and pushes us into the future, something like that. All right. And she, and she says, look, like, you know, even if you look at wild animals, like I think about deer in the rut, because where I live, you know, you, deer in the rut during hunting season, you know, they, they do all kinds of things they would never do. You know, the deer, deer fight, they cause injury to each other, they kill one another, they get their antlers locked into one another to where they can't even break free and they starve to death, you know, in this battle for, for the right to procreate. You know, they, they will do anything they can to win the race, to, to have their ch- children, to have their, their, you know, DNA continue. It's amazing. All right. All right, so here we go. He says, uh, marvel, or she says, marvel not. If you believe that love is all excuse me, if you believe that love is of the, the immortal, as we have several times acknowledged, for here again, and on the same principle too, the mortal nature is seeking, as far as is possible, to be everlasting and immortal. And this is only to be attained by generation, because generation always leaves behind 
a new existence in the place of the old. Nay, even in the life of the same individual, there is succession and not absolute unity. A man is called the same, and yet in the short interval which elapses between youth and age, and in which every animal is said to have life and identity, he is undergoing a perpetual process of loss and reparation. Hair, flesh, bones, blood, and the whole body are always changing, which is true not only of the body, but also of the soul, whose habits, tempers, opinions, desires, pleasures, pains, fears, never remain the same in any one of us, but are always coming and going, and especially true of knowledge, and which is still more surprising to us mortals, not only do the sciences in general spring up and decay, so that in respect of them we are never the same, but each of them individually experiences a like change. For what is implied in the world in the word recollection, but the departure of knowledge which is ever being forgotten and is renewed and preserved by recollection, and appears to be the same, although in reality new. According to that law of succession by which all mortal things are preserved, not absolutely the same, but by substitution, the old worn-out mortality leaving another new and similar existence behind, unlike the divine which is always the same, and not another. And in this way, Socrates, the mortal body, or mortal anything, partakes of immortality, but the immortal in another way. Marvel not, then, at the love which all men have of their offspring, for that universal love and interest is for the sake of immortality. Okay, well, um, so this conversation about love has meandered. It's been really interesting to see how the Greeks think about it. And from where we started to where we ended, we're not quite done yet, but you can see it's really a really interesting path. And now what what we have where we have sort of reached is this idea that that love is this expression for the desire to be immortal and the implication being that like Hesiod said that God was all things united in the beginning and man is is masculine and feminine united or su- supposed to be that way that the desire to return to this oneness is a desire to to recognize our mortality or to or to be immortal and what it is is a recognition of just like we said before this as above so below idea it's recognition that we are the thing that we that we call immortal you know we're doing it in this process we're doing it in this biological process in this place that we call reality or being but what we're doing is perpetuating ourselves. We're, we're being immortal, like God is immortal. And that is a very mystical thing to say. What, what, I've said this many times, this, this quote uh, that, I, that I coined, which is, we are the experience that God is having. And I believe that. And I believe that this is what uh, this, this woman was telling Socrates in you know, 400 BC or whatever it was. That love is the quest for for immortality, and that that is recognition of our of our nature. Our nature is the same as God. It's this oneness. It's it's this immortal, undying, self created thing. It's unbelievable. All right. All right. So she continues. These are the lesser mysteries of love, 
into which even you, Socrates, may enter, to the greater and more hidden ones, which are the crown of these, and to which, if you pursue them in a right spirit, they will lead you. I will, not, I will not whether you will be able to attain, but I will do my utmost to inform you, and do you follow if you can. For he who would proceed aright in this matter should begin in youth to visit beautiful forms, and first, if he be guided by his instructor aright, to love one such form only. Out of that he should, he should create fair thoughts, and soon he will of himself perceive that the beauty of one form is akin to the beauty of another." And then if beauty of, of form in general is, the, is his pursuit, how foolish would he, would he be not to recognize that the beauty in every form is and the same? All right, so that's confusing. But um, what she's saying here is this is the path if you want to understand the deepest mystery of love. It's like everything we've talked about so far, you know, you can kind of get there from logic, um, you know, that, yeah, but, but what you're missing is something deeper. And if you want to know what that deeper thing is, this is what you have to do. She says, in, in, in the right spirit, you have to choose something beautiful. Seek out something beautiful and love it only. And eventually what you will find is that the thing that you love and the thing that you think is beautiful, um, you find that it's reflected in other things, in other things that are beautiful, and other things that you love. And then eventually you find out that there's this idea that's not exactly connected to objects. That's beauty and love. It's something else. Okay. Uh, she goes on. In the next stage, he will consider that the beauty of the mind is more honorable than the beauty of the outward form. He will go on to the sciences that he may see their beauty being not like a servant in love with the beauty of one youth or man or institution himself a slave, mean and narrow-minded, but drawing towards and contemplating the vast sea of beauty, which he will create many fair and noble thoughts and notions and boundless love of wisdom, until on that shore he grows and waxes strong, and at, and at last the vision is revealed to him of a single science, which is the science of beauty everywhere. To this I will proceed. Please to give me your very best attention." All right, so she's saying the next step in this process is to go beyond seeing seeing that all beauty all beauty is basically the same no matter what form it takes, but to but to explore the sciences, to explore kind of the realities of nature, um, you know. And what you will find there is that there's beauty everywhere. And now she says, here's kind of here's the best part. She says, he who has been instructed thus far in the things of love and who has learned to see the beautiful in due order and succession, when he comes towards the end, will suddenly perceive a nature of wondrous beauty. And this, Socrates, is the final cause of all our former toils, a nature which in the first place is everlasting, not growing and decaying or waxing and waning. Secondly, not fair in one point of view and foul in another, or at one time or in one relation or at one place fair at another time or in another relation or at another place foul, as if fair to some and foul to others, or in the likeness of a face or hands or any other part of the bodily frame or in any form of speech or knowledge or existing in any other being, as, for example, in an animal or in heaven or in earth or in any other place, but beauty absolute, separate, simple, and everlasting. 
which without uh, d- diminution and without increase or any change is imparted to, to the ever-growing and perishing beauties of all other things. All right, I'll stop there for just a second. There's more. All right, so, so what, what she's saying here now is that, um, let's see. Uh, so she, she's referring to the realization that, that you will discover that beauty is everlasting, that it's not growing, decaying, waxing, or waning. So this idea of beauty and love that we've been discussing, that she's been discussing, she's saying that you come to recognize that at the core of it, you have something that isn't changing. It's not waxing or waning or decaying. It's the same, and it's and it's immortal. It's that it's that everlasting thing, that immortal thing that that love is the pursuit of. So you come to realize that there's something that's not like you, like she was saying earlier, where you're always constantly changing. Uh, she said your you know your ideas change, your body changes, your your you know uh, your maturity changes, your you know your she. She maybe called it spirit or soul, but you have all these things constantly changing about you and your experience. Nothing's ever, you know, not changing. She said, if you pursue love to that degree, what you will find is that there is something, this idea of love and beauty, that isn't changing. So now you're confronted with something that is not like anything else in the world. It's not like anything else in your experience. This is the idea of being, like that's your experience, and it's opposite, non-being. What is that? We've talked about that before, but this is the idea of opposites united in the in the chaos at the beginning, in the God and the Ouroboros. Um, so let's continue. All right, um, where did we leave off? Uh, okay. All right, well maybe repeating a sentence. But he who from these ascending under the influence of true love be, uh, begins to perceive that beauty is not far from the end. And the true order of going or being led by another to the things of love is to is to begin from the beauties of earth and ma- and mount upwards for the sake of that other beauty using these as steps only and from one going going on to two and from two to all fair forms and from fair forms to fair practices and from fair practices to fair notions until from fair notions he arrives at the notion of absolute beauty and at last knows that the essence of beauty and at last knows what the essence of beauty is. All right, so here she's describing this process, this this meditation on beauty, being able to understand that that what is beautiful is sort of one thing, regardless of what form it takes, and then understanding that beauty is not necessarily connected to objects, that it's this immortal thing that's unchanging, that's outside of ourselves. This is this idea starting to form that Plato will get into about the, the world of forms, about these ideals that exist in a way that's not, not exactly like we experience it in reality, but in some other perfect way. Um, and she says, and this is when you will know what the essence of beauty is. When, when, when you, you continue to track, in kind of in a more abstract way, what love and beauty means until you get to this idea of maybe love and beauty by itself. And she says, this, my dear Socrates, said the stranger um, of Mantinea, uh, that, apparently that's where she's from, is that life above all others which man should live in the contemplation of beauty absolute, a beauty which if you once beheld, you would see not to be after the measure of gold and garments and fair boys and youths whose presence now entrances you and you and many 
and many a one would be content to live seeing them only and conversing with them without meat or drink, if that were possible. You only want to look at them and to be with them. But what if man had eyes to see the true beauty, the divine beauty? I mean pure and dear and and unalloyed, not clogged with the pollutions of mortality and all the colors and vanities of human life. Thither looking and holding converse with the true beauty, simple and divine. Remember how in that communion only, beholding beauty with the eye of, of the mind, he will be enabled to bring forth not images of beauty, but realities. For he has hold not of he has hold not of an image, but of a reality, and bringing forth a nourishing true virtue to become the friend of God, and be immortal. Jesus. Okay. All right. Where to begin? Um, where to begin? Okay. Um, all right, so he's talking about the notion of absolute beauty. So we've, we've now taken this idea of beauty from the world. We're now holding it up as an object in and of itself that we can see reflected in the world, but we believe this beauty and love exists some other way. You can see it reflected in the world, but, but it exists in some other way. And she says, um, at last knows the essence of, of what beauty is. Okay, so, and she says, um, so that, that the life you should live is the one in contemplation of absolute beauty, and that uh, once you behold it, that what you'll know is that it's more beautiful than all the things of, of you know, reality. So she says gold, gold and garments and, you know, beautiful people and all that. And she says, and and you and many a one would be content to live seeing and only and conversing only with them. She's like, even if you couldn't eat or drink, you'd be happy to just sit there in this contemplation of absolute beauty. And you can just sit there and starve to death and, and be perfectly happy uh, contemplating this idea once you reach this idea. So here I have to point out, maybe another another shout out to the kind of mystic experience when people describe having these uh, experiences, these one with the universe experiences or the ego death experience that you might hear people talk about, uh, either from meditation or psychedelics or re- religious ecstasy of some kind or other, this is what they're describing. They're describing being in the presence of beauty and love. It's like, uh, and it's not even necessarily visual. It's being, it's not, it's not being, I, I should say, it's becoming one with that idea, with absolute beauty, uh, with love, with God, actually. It's an experience that is terrifying, but also unbelievably beautiful and meaningful. And it's not attached to any objects or subjects. Is That's the weirdest thing. It's almost like a feeling, it's like an emotional experience um, that's detached from material reality and your body. It's, it's a, a very hard to describe, but it's so powerful that when, when you come out of an experience like that, you just immediately want to go back. Um, and you, you, maybe you've heard people talk about that with like near-death experiences. The level, the level of beauty and peace in those experiences is so powerful. It's so pleasant that it's beyond compare. There's nothing in in material reality that even compares to it, and I think this is what she's getting at. It's like even if you even if you couldn't eat or drink and you just got to sit there in this experience, you would do it. You would you would voluntarily do it. 
And then in the end, she says, and bringing forth a nourishing true virtue to become the friend of God and be immortal. And that is what you feel in the mystic experience. You do feel yourself to be God, if not the friend of God. You, you feel yourself to become one with God. And when you do that, the idea of being immortal is just par for the course. You know, there is no beginning or end. It's an eternal feeling. And when you become that eternal feeling, this is, this is why people who have the experience claim to no longer have fear of death or at least the same sort of fear of death because the intuition that you take away from that experience is in some way it's that death is, is, is an illusion. Death is not real or it's certainly not the end. And so this is what I mean, that that experience that she's describing as the experience of sort of pure beauty or love, uh, that is the experience of becoming God. That is the mystic experience to a T. And this is what Socrates is bringing to the discussion. All right, guys. All right, so here, here's how she ends. Um, such, uh, or this is how Socrates ends. He says, Such, Phaedrus, and I speak not only to you, but to all of you, were the words of Diodema, and I am persuaded of their truth. And being persuaded of them, I try to persuade others that in the attainment of this end, human nature will not easily find a helper better than love. And therefore, also I say that every man ought to honor him as I myself honor him, and walk in his ways, and exhort others to do the same, and praise the power and spirit of love according to the measure of my ability now and ever. And that's how Socrates' piece ends before the drunk guy breaks in, and the rest of the story I think is probably not so important. But here's what's interesting. So he says, look, so I completely agree with what she told me, and that and that love is the path to having this experience of pure beauty or having this, having this uh, atonement feeling, this at-one-ment, this mystical or spiritual experience of becoming one with the universe. That love is the path to that. And now she, you know, she talked about that through the lens of beauty, but the idea here is that if you find ways to love yourself and others... And to do that as much as you possibly can, that what you will be doing is sort of expanding your soul, for lack of a better word, to incorporate those people that you love. That you can you can come to love them the way that I described loving my daughters, where I would voluntarily lay down my life for them because the self-preservation instinct I have is now directed at them and no longer centered in myself. If you can do that more and more and more. If we can do that as as a as a as a human race, um, what we will what we will be doing is recognizing to greater and greater degree that we are one with each other, right? Because if I love strangers to the degree that I love my children, that I recognize them as myself and would be willing to lay down my life voluntarily for them, something like that that if we can get to the point where we all felt that way, that we would, we would be right on the precipice of understanding the truth of this experience, this experience of absolute beauty that she was describing, this one with a universe feeling. We'd be right on the precipice of understanding that consciousness is the Ouroboros. It is that the, the opposites united, that God, that chaos that all things come from. 
that was held together by love, according to Hesiod. Love was in there, in that primordial egg, and when it burst open, all of consciousness in the cosmos came rushing out of it. That if we can come to recognize in love that we're all one, that we're all the same, that in that experience we will have this absolute experience of love and beauty. We will, we will have this mystic experience or intuition that tells us how important love is. It's the thing that, rec- that allows us to recognize ourselves in one another. I don't know how much more mystical you can get than that. So, Socrates, Plato, thank you. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.